thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. Yes, Revelation 12. When Mark asked me to preach this week uh, on the Christmas story, I thought it was a rather strange request for this time of year. I mean, even allowing for his Northern Hemisphere origins, the Christmas story in May, I mean, even Canadians aren't normally that weird, but he told me that this month you've been going through the book of Revelation, and that it just so happened that you were up to chapter 12, which is the bit about Christmas, right? Go with me on this. So I thought, uh, fair enough, we can make this work. Because this isn't really the usual telling of the Christmas story, is it? Uh, Certainly not the one we're familiar with. Uh, It's not the one from, say, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, written from the perspective of a Jew who saw Jesus' birth as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's not the story from Luke's Gospel, from the perspective of a Gentile historian who, who saw Jesus' birth as a part of God's great plan of salvation for all of humanity. In fact, it's not really written from a human perspective at all, an earthly perspective, but rather a heavenly one, a spiritual one. Uh, This vision that you've been talking about, given to John as he was exiled on the island of Patmos, and then written down in this book which we call Revelation. And I'm sure as Mark has been pointing out to you, this whole style of writing which we call apocalyptic, uh, it means unhidden. And this style of writing was all about revealing the, the hidden spiritual realities that lie behind our physical existence using bizarre imagery from another world in order to portray people and events in a certain way so that we might understand what's actually going on behind it all. And so that's what today's reading does with the Christmas story. Revelation chapter 12 is an apocalyptic presentation of the story of Jesus. So we're going to read it now. You can open up to Revelation 12 if you want. But as it's a very complicated story to follow, and I really wanted you to follow it, I've enlisted the help of some Lego as you do, okay? So it'll also be on the screen behind you. Um, And by the way, Martin has asked me to tell you that we are having technical problems, so the screen's a little bit cropped. You probably won't notice, but for aficionados like us, it's not projecting quite correctly. So here we go. Revelation chapter 12. A sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And the child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, 
who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Okay, if you're still with me after that, you're probably thinking, so how is that the Christmas story? You know, what with the complete absence of shepherds, mangers, and inappropriate baby shower gifts? Uh, And I admit, it's not really Christmas carol material, is it? You know, no one's going to be singing songs about Rudolph the Seven-Headed Dragon. Certainly no one's laughing and calling him names. But as an apocalyptic telling of the story, it's not interested in cute nativity scenes, fluffy sheep and underage percussionists. It's interested in showing us what is going on behind the scenes of the Christmas story. What's going on in the skies, if you like? What's going on in the spiritual realm? And I think that by doing this, it ends up telling us more about the Christmas story than a nice sanitized picture of a kid in a stable. So let's have a look through it. Started off with a sign in the skies, the image of a woman clothed with the sun, a fashion faux pas guaranteed to make anyone's bum look big, but she knows how to accessorize. The moon's under her feet and she has a crown of 12 stars on her head. Who is this woman? Well, if you're reading this in the Mediterranean world of the first century, you would realize, uh, you would recognize this image straight away. It's a pagan one of the Queen of Heaven, uh, used of various goddesses like Isis in Egypt. That's the goddess Isis, not the death cult. Uh, The goddess Isis. Uh, And interestingly, it was also used for the goddess Roma, this divine embodiment of the city of Rome the one who was to give birth to the Roman emperor, who by this time was worshipped as a saviour of the world. Starting to sound a little bit Christmassy yet? But you see, in this story, it quickly becomes clear that the queen of heaven is no pagan goddess, because the child she gives birth to is described as a son who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And any reader who knew their Old Testament would know that this this was a promise given to King David about his descendants, about the kings of Israel, and a promise that by this time had come to be associated with the coming king, the Messiah. 
So to a Christian audience, this is a clear reference to the birth of Jesus. So who's the woman then? Well, I suppose on one level it's Mary, isn't it? Who, who literally gave birth to Jesus. But as we read on in the, chap- in the chapter, the woman seems to represent the people of God. The community of Israel, the community that gave birth to the Messiah, as it were. Which makes sense when you remember that the Queen of Heaven imagery was used throughout the Roman Empire to represent the goddess Roma, Mother Rome. But here, this subversive Christian writing tells us something different. It tells us that the true Queen of Heaven is not Mother Rome, as much as Rome's spin doctors would want you to believe it. The true Queen of Heaven is Mother Zion, is Jerusalem. The old covenant people of God, they are the ones who give birth to the real saviour of the world. Not some nut job in a toga who thinks he rules the world, but the true saviour who actually does rule the world. Jesus, God's true king. And still today, we need this message, don't we? The queen of heaven isn't, I don't know, Mother Washington, who seems to go into labour every four years in the hope of squeezing out the next saviour. And you've got to admit, if ever there were a candidate who acted like one of the crazier Roman emperors, it's this guy. But the Queen of Heaven isn't mother humanism, giving birth to its twin saviours of tolerance and harmony. Or is that Gwyneth Paltrow's kids? I always forget. But uh, neither is the Queen of Heaven mother science, whose latest saviour promises to upload our consciousness to the clouds where we will live forever. No, God's people are the Queen of Heaven. And Jesus is our true saviour to whom she gave birth. But the birth was difficult. I mean, most are, but hand up any mothers here who had to put up with a seven-headed dragon standing at the end of the bed waiting to devour your child the moment it emerged. I mean, we had one midwife who was close, but you know. (laughs) The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. And just in case you can't guess who the dragon is in this story, we're actually told a little bit later in verse 9, the great dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Okay, so we've got the characters right, but, but what's Satan doing here at the birth of Jesus? I mean, I don't remember him from any of the nativity scenes, do you? you know, I'll play my horns for him, pa up a pum pum I didn't actually see that. What does this represent here at the Christmas story at the birth of Jesus? Well, again, at one level, there's probably a hint of King Herod, who posed a literal threat to the infant Jesus right from the beginning, thanks to the wise men not keeping their mouths shut. But at another level, Satan was lining up with far more than just King Herod to throw at Jesus. That was just the opening salvo. In fact, we see this played out 30-odd years later, when this male child, this promised saviour, is put to death on a cross just outside Jerusalem. But amid both those perils, we see that God was with his child, protecting him. Although the dragon thinks he's about to devour him, in both cases, he's snatched away to God and to his throne, to safety. With King Herod, God warns Joseph in a dream, and he's snatched away to this place of safety in Egypt. And just when it looks like the dragon's won 30 years later... The dragon, uh, sorry, God snatches his child back from the grave, raising him to life 
and seating him in the heavens at his side. The great monster is thwarted in his plans, and the Son of God completes his saving mission. But that seems a lot of effort to go to, doesn't it? Just to retell the Christmas story. You know, adding dragons and spewing serpents and images of pagan goddesses. I mean, was this really necessary? The thing is, this wasn't a new story, even in the first century. The first readers of Revelation, they actually knew this story in another guise. In fact, there's a whole bunch of variations, but the one probably best known to John's readers would have been that about the birth of the Greek god Apollo. You see, in this myth, the god Zeus gets the god Leto pregnant. And as you'd expect, his wife is not too happy about that. So his wife sends Python, the serpent monster, to pursue Leto. But Zeus protects her using the gods of wind and sea and shelters her on an island. Leto then gives birth to Apollo, who grows up to defeat and kill Python. And to do some serious supplements by the look of it there. But uh, that's the story of the birth of the god Apollo. There's a similar story back in Egyptian mythology too. It involves Isis, uh, again, the goddess, not the death cult, who I said is often depicted using queen of heaven imagery. She gives birth to the sun god Horus, whose life is then threatened by a red dragon who's also often depicted as a serpent. Again, the child is miraculously protected from the danger of water, and the child eventually slays the dragon. Do you get what's going on here? In Revelation 12, the story of Jesus is being retold using the imagery of Mediterranean mythology. Or to put it more simply, John tells the Christmas story using the pop culture references of his day. And not just for the fun of it. Not just because it's a clever thing to do. But he's doing this to make a very serious point. A very subversive point when you know that the Roman emperors like Nero and Domitian often would cast themselves as the incarnation of the god Apollo. By putting the Christmas story in these terms, John is telling us who the true saviour of the world is. It's not the emperor, as much as he might like to portray himself as one. But it's Jesus, born not out of Rome, but out of Israel. In fact, the next chapter of Revelation that we'll look at next week, Rome is portrayed as an evil beast who's on the side of the dragon. But here it's Jesus who is the true hero. And his birth is the one that everyone ought to be celebrating, not that of the emperor. Jesus is the fulfillment of what lies behind these pagan myths. This desire for a hero to rise up and to defeat evil. Now this might... This might seem a bit of a weird point to make, right? Jesus fulfilling pagan myths. When have you heard that before? Yet we talk about fulfillment all the time with the Old Testament. When all that the Jews were expecting, all that they were longing for, this restoration of all things, all of this finds its fulfillment in Jesus, in the Messiah. Now, yes, this this Jewish longing was helped along by prophets and revelations from God, but... Should it surprise us if we see this kind of desire in other cultures? If we see this longing amongst all people, this desperate desire for a hero to come, uh, to battle against the odds, and then ultimately to defeat evil on our behalf? This is a universal longing 
a universal story. And so John retells the story of Jesus using the language of his own culture. Showing how Christmas and this Jesus story isn't just the fulfillment of Jewish expectations, but it's the fulfillment of all of humanity's deepest longings and desires. It's like today, if we, we cast Jesus in the language, I don't know, of a Frodo Baggins, off to defeat the evil Sauron once and for all against the odds. Or Neo sacrificing himself to free others from the Matrix. Or Obi-Wan Kenobi being struck down, yet becoming more powerful through self-sacrifice. Or even Marlon battling sharks and jellyfish and fishing trawlers to bring back his prodigal son, Nemo. Yes, we still have myths these days. We just like to film them and use them to sell merchandise. But as Tolkien himself once put it, in Christ, myths become reality in human history. Myths become reality in human history. That is, the stories that tap into our deepest longings and our greatest hopes, they actually become real. They become not myths. They become real in the historical person of Jesus. Have you ever wondered why people who aren't Christians still seem to like the Christmas story? Why there's this universal fascination with the nativity scene, even when there's a rejection of God? I think it's because all of humanity wants to hear the words, unto you is born this day a saviour. Even if they might not like the fact that it's Christ the Lord. Even all of those lame and tedious Christmas movies that get trotted out every December, on some level they are all pale, shallow imitations of the Christ story. Now, granted, in these movies, humanity normally isn't in peril because of sin and death, merely that Christmas might be cancelled and there's no presents. But we still have tales of an unlikely hero battling against the odds to save the day. Uh, Be it a small boy on the Polar Express, or a disfigured reindeer, or, or even Tim Allen. The Christmas story isn't just the nativity scene. It is the fulfillment of everything that humanity is waiting for. In every time, in every culture, even if a lot of the time the world doesn't recognize that. But back to the story, there's a scene change. And we see war break out in heaven. Actually, the words in Greek for heaven and sky are the same. And in the first century worldview, what happened in the sky parallels what happens down here on earth. And so astrological phenomena are interpreted as omens. Uh, significant things were thought to happen at the, uh, in the skies at important events in the world, like the outbreak of war or the birth of an important person. Uh, a bit like when the Magi saw a new star appear above Bethlehem and said to each other, dudes, we've got to go and check that out. My Persian's a bit rusty, I think that's what it said. Uh, and this, in this war in the sky, it sees a third of the stars swept down. Uh, in Jewish writings, angels are often thought of as stars. And Satan and his angels fall from heaven. It says, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth, and his angels with him. Now, why is war in heaven part of the Christmas story? I mean, I know the angels technically only say peace on earth, but but what's going on? Why is there war in heaven? 
If you remember that apocalyptic writing, it's all about revealing the spiritual reality behind what goes on in history. And so here, Revelation is telling us that when Christ was born in this physical dimension, it started a war in the spiritual dimension. Pivotal events on earth are accompanied by great movements in the heavens. It's a bit like those old World War I films, or World War II films, I should say, where you see all the generals standing around a giant table that's been set up as like a, a model of the battlefield. And as the battle happens out on the field, the information gets relayed back to headquarters, and then the model pieces are sort of moved around the table. It means that the generals, in one glance, can see the big picture of what's happening. And then on that basis, they will send orders back out to their troops. And so it goes back and forth with what's happening there on the table, both reflecting and influencing the battle in real life. The unit commanders out there in the field might only be able to see their little part of the whole thing. But the generals see it all as it simultaneously plays out on the table. Well, this depiction of a war in the sky is like an overview of the battlefield, where you get to see the big picture all at once. Some of the events on earth here might not look all that significant from the perspective of those involved. A teenage mum giving birth in a stable, for example. But you see, Revelation shows us that it is part of a much, much bigger picture. Lying behind this Christmas story is nothing less than the defeat of Satan. The birth of Jesus is the opening salvo in a heavenly war, and his resurrection is the winning battle. This victory is what that loud voice in heaven proclaimed. Now have come the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. The Christmas story isn't just the nativity scene. It's God's victory over Satan, where we get to declare not simply the birth of a cute baby, but we proclaim to the world the defeat of evil. But it doesn't end there, does it? There's an unhappy dragon. That's a happy dragon. Let's try an unhappy dragon. <laughs> Anything but... That's better. Okay. As you might expect, the dragon isn't particularly happy about being cast down from the sky. In fact, the voice from heaven gives us a little bit of a warning. Did you pick that up? It says, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. And so he goes off to cause trouble. First stop, that pesky woman who bore the child. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. Uh, this obviously refers to Satan's persecution of the people of God. Uh, I think probably Jewish Christians are in view here. But what happens? Just like God looked after his son, God looked after his people too. And the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. This has echoes of the Old Testament where God looked after his people wandering in the wilderness and as it says, bore them on eagle's wings. Uh, the three and a half times, or years, or 1,260 days, as they were referred to earlier, uh, is symbolic, yes. Yeah, three and a half is half of seven. But it, also about the time that Jerusalem was besieged by the Roman army in the late 60s. 
And during that time, many Christians escaped out to a stronghold in the desert during this time. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Again, echoes of the Old Testament, right? With the the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. But it also contains the plot line of the Apollo myth that we talked about before and the Egyptian one. The point of combining all of this is to say that God is at work protecting his people from the wrath of Satan. And so stymied by that, the dragon was enraged at the woman and he went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Who are the rest of his offspring, uh, the woman's offspring? Uh, We can't be certain, but I suppose if the woman does represent Jewish Christians uh, and Israel, then this may well refer to Gentile Christians. Uh, In the first instance, those being persecuted during the 80s and 90s AD under the Emperor Domitian, about the time that Revelation was written. But however you interpret it, it answers an important question, does it not? It answers the question, well, if God has defeated Satan... Why is there still persecution and suffering? If Christmas really is good news for all the people, if Jesus really was the saviour of the world, did he really bring peace on earth? Well, why is it then that there is still so much wrong with this world? Didn't it work? Did the hero actually fail to defeat the dragon? Did Frodo never make it to Mount Moriah? Did, Did Neo decide to take the blue pill instead? Did, I don't know, Rudolph steer the sleigh into the path of an oncoming A380? I don't know. But the point is, here's the answer. Let me read verse 12 again, just in case you missed it. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, this is the key bit, because he knows his time is short. In the story, the dragon has been defeated. He's been cast down from the heavens, that's for sure but he's still awaiting his final sentencing. In the great cosmic chess game we see played out in the skies, the only possible outcome is checkmate, but still the moves have to be played out. In fact, it's the defeat of the dragon that's actually made things worse for the moment. Like a wounded bull or, or like Tony Abbott as a backbencher, he's cranky and he's prowling the earth to cause as much havoc as possible because he knows his time is short. And as Revelation 20 tells us, one day he will be thrown into the lake of fire, destroyed forever. For many people, celebrating the Christmas story, well, it isn't a joyful time. Because we know that the dragon has been at work in this fallen world, and they're suffering because of it. Illness, depression, unemployment, broken relationships, and the list could go on. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, hey, forget Christmas for a minute. Life for a lot of us isn't that much fun, is it? And in a sense, the Christmas celebrations can often make it just worse because everyone's supposed to be pretending they're happy, right? We need to remember that the Christmas story isn't just the nativity scene. It's a reminder that although there is still suffering and pain in this world, that suffering is temporary, it's limited. It's the aftershocks of the battle that defeated Satan. And they are in themselves the promise that one day the dragon will be destroyed for good. 
So if at the moment your life or the life of someone you love looks like the dragon is still vomiting rivers at them, don't take that as a sign that God has forgotten you. Don't take that as a sign that somehow God is no longer in control, that the outcome of this war is still up in the air. Now, your suffering as a follower of Jesus, your suffering in this broken and fallen world is actually a sign that the war has been won. And the enemy is just getting in as many hits as he can before the final siren sounds. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And I think we can all say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you for the message that this chapter has brought us. So that we can see our little place on the battlefield in its true perspective. That the battle has already been won. It was won 2,000 years ago with the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Help us to keep focused on the fact that the war has been won. And that one day, you will come to put things right. And do, do away with evil once and for all. And Father, we pray with all of our hearts that that day would be soon. And we pray this in Jesus, the victorious Lamb's name. Amen.